welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I just startled Jeff with my announcement because I was so super duper excited. We are already at episode six, and we're entitling this episode Bringing Diversity Back, baby. So it's coming back, and we're going to give you some of the ways that we're going to do that. Jeff, stop laughing at me. I'm not <laughs> laughing. I'm laughing with you. Okay, good. As long as you're laughing with me. So I am Megan Benage. I'm a Southern Regional Ecologist for the DNR, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, as I am every time. Jessica Peterson, vertebrate ecologist for the Minnesota Biological Survey, Department of Natural Resources. We have two awesome guests today, Jess. Yeah, they're the best. They are the best. Who else is in here? There's just me and Kurt. <laughs> Kurt, do you want to introduce yourself? No. Yeah, right now. Oh, I'm trying to follow this outline. That's... It's down there away. Oh, we give that up as soon as the taping starts. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Kurt Vosick, Area Wildlife Manager with the Minnesota DNR. I work out of the Appleton Wildlife Office. And I am Jeff Zajac. I'm the Wildlife Manager in Redwood Falls. Good job. You guys, it's like I practiced. You, it's like you've done this before, Jeff. Oh, I say it in the mirror every morning, so I get it right. <laughs> That's part of your affirmation. That's right. <laughs> I'm good enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. You might want to try combing your hair next time, too. Oh, I don't have enough hair to comb. We're already down a rabbit hole. It's going to be a doozy. I see so, the flag flying. Today, we are going to talk about interceding, and I just want to be clear about what this is. This is a practice where we add wildflowers or other missing guilds. So this could be other families that you didn't have in your original seed mix. Sedges might be one. And we're adding them to already established stands of grass. So already established habitat. Some people call this overseeding. We call it interseeding. Doesn't matter if you're going inner, over. It's the same to us. Just laughing at me. I'm making hand gestures for inner and over. That's why we're laughing. So how can we bring these lower diversity stands of grass up to a higher level of diversity? Because diversity is where it's at. I mean, that's why we're bringing it back, baby. Because the more diverse an area is, the more resilient it is, which means it has a better ability to withstand all the things that are going to be thrown at it. Like climate change, drought, extreme rainfall events, all that stuff. It's got to be more diverse so something lives and we have really, really awesome restorations. Okay, we're talking about more flowers. More, 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 more. Jess, should we jump in? Well, yeah, I liked how you said um, it, you certainly want to add diversity through interseeding, but I also like the idea of making sure, you know, even if it's you have a super diverse planting, maybe you still have some guilds or groups or families or whatever that you were missing from that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be restricted to super low diversity plantings, although that's typically what we think about. But I like the idea of opening it up to thinking about adding in some um, species that maybe were missed or didn't. You know, I often think about violets, prairie violets, and that's a species that gets missed oftentimes for a variety of reasons. So, you know, maybe you have a super diverse stand and you want to add that in. So I like I liked that caveat. Jess, why do, why do you like prairie violets? Oh, that's a good question. I like prairie violets because they are the host plant for the prairie endemic regal fritillary, one of my all-time favorite butterflies. If you've not seen this butterfly, it's spectacular. It's like the megafauna of the prairie. I know Kurt and Jeff like this butterfly. They watch it puddling on... Uh, 
dead frogs on the roadside or (laughs) (laughs) just like the Joe Stangle of butterflies. (laughs) Well, that too. I mean, I've never seen him puddle though. Well, yeah, I I don't think he. You don't know him very well, do you? (laughs) Dead frogs, but um, it's just a it's a really striking butterfly with the the silver spots on the underside, and um, it's one of our last remaining prairie endemic butterflies. We got to make sure we keep it around, and one of the ways to do that is to provide the um, endem to provide its host, the prairie violets. When Jess says endemic, she means native to the prairie. It belongs there. Yeah, it doesn't really live anywhere else. Yeah, see? So we need it. One more reason why prairies in Minnesota are awesome. Pretty cool. Did you want to elaborate on the dead frogs? (laughs) Kurt has a great story about dead frogs and and regal. So if you don't know, um, a lot of butterflies need nutrients um, to to live. They need these micro um, nutrients and they can get them from um, uh, fecal pellets. I, what else are we calling this? Poop? What yeah, is the appropriate the term? Feces. Just poop. Feces. 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 Excrement. Um, also, uh, they will suck up kind of um, salt and things like that from puddles in on roadsides, or dead frogs. Roadkill frogs. <laughs> roadkill, yeah, roadkill frogs seem yeah, to attract regals. Nature's recycling. Right? Yeah, yeah, they got to get it from somewhere, so. That was a good source of some nutrients for them, apparently. I'd like to know what exactly it is they were getting from the the roadkill. But it's enough, that's a whole other podcast. Whole podcast. Whole so many, podcast. So yep. many things to explore. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so many things to explore. So, okay, before we get into kind of the background on interceding, I want to give Kurt and Jeff the opportunity to talk a little bit about their daily lives and sort of the work that they do. Not, I mean, don't give us like the the giant science textbook version. You know, just give us the abbreviated sure. version. So I manage uh, about 80 public wildlife management areas in Big Stone, Swift, and Lock Parle counties. Uh, total about 23,000 acres. Whoa! Uh, so responsible for all the habitat management on those WMAs. Uh, also like to help out our partners with fisheries and sometimes ecological and water resources on prairie bank sites. What? So do some private lands work uh, and just provide technical guidance for private lands folks. So it's a whole gamut of, of wetland management and upland management. And of course the upland management includes in my area a lot of grassland management. Good deal. Jeff? Ditto what he said. Except, you were gonna in, do that. <laughs> except in Brown, Redwood, and Renderville counties, we've got about 65 wildlife areas and a little over 14,000 acres that we're managing there. Um, almost all of it wetland and grassland. We get bits of forest along the Minnesota River and some of the other tribs, but it's mostly it's mostly upland and grassland and wetland stuff that we do there. 
And both views have both views. <laughs> just like turned into a New Jersey mobster. Both views have really interesting and neat features in your landscapes that kind of only occur in those places in Minnesota. The Minnesota River Valley is pretty awesome and neat. Then you've got some really rare rock outcrops and calcareous fens and other really cool, amazing habitats. You got oh. some saline wetlands in your area, Kurt. You do. Yes. You have a saline Salt lake. lake. Salt Lake. It's a really neat birding area. Um, unique for invertebrates. And unfortunately, that's a whole other podcast as well. But I know. It's, uh, you should get your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it the Kurt Vosick Saline Lake I don't know podcast. if I can handle that. <laughs> I don't know if I can that. Deep thoughts with Mr. Vosick. <laughs> well, hopefully we're going to tap into some of your deep thoughts about interceding. So, okay, we're jumping right into our topic, keeping us all on course. Sometimes we have too much fun, but that's all right. So... Like we said, when we think about interceding, it's this idea that you're going to try to improve habitat in some way. And like Jess said, it doesn't have to be necessarily low diversity, but I think today we're primarily going to focus on how do you get a low diversity site and bring it up to a higher level of diversity. And we mean, just a reminder, we're talking about diversity. It's not just the number of plants, like the number of species. We're also talking about Jess's favorite term, evenness. So do you just have 20 yellow comb flowers and you have one purple prairie clover? You need to try to get, so you have two species there, but they're not very even. So we're trying to work on that level of diversity too, which goes back into the structure of the prairie. So we are primarily doing this on restorations, I would say. Is that correct, you guys think? Are you doing it on native prairie too? We do, I've done it on really degraded stuff old pasture where you'll have some natives but you've got a lot of bluegrass brown grass and that's kind of dominating the site but yeah I, i've done that a couple times but it's mostly in seeding especially older seedings from the 80s and 90s where it was a few varieties of warm season grass and it's been dominated that way for years no oh, that's a good point we do do that i think the point i want to make before we go into it is that Sometimes when we intercede, it can involve breaking the ground. And if you're going to do that in a remnant prairie, you have to think long and hard prior to breaking it because you can never go back to an unbroken state. And sometimes that might be the best choice for that prairie, and other times it's not. Yeah, and I would say that if you're going to break that ground, then it's no longer interceding. You're, yeah. you're basically starting over with True. The reconstruction. True. Good caveat points. Okay. Kurt. Although you can do some mild disturbance, and we'll get into that. Well, we're mm -hmm. going to get into it right now. Okay. So what are the types of things that you look at to determine whether or not you're going to use interseeding as a management tool? Well, like Jeff, it's not only those warm season grasslands that we that were just dominantly warm season grasslands, big blue Indian switchgrass that aren't don't have any forbs, but it's also those degraded prairie sites where it's kind of... A, it's so degraded you're considering starting over, but then you see enough indicator species out there that you're like, no, we got to hold on to what we have there. What so, are some of the indicators you look for when you say you see enough indicator species? Well, native species, native forbs uh, especially. and Like lead plant? Lead plant, echinacea, you know, uh, even wild rose. Um, Stiff goldenrod will persist in pastures um, fairly well. You might have little little bits of prairie clover here and there. Generally, it's the 
Oh, the things that are resistant to spray and resistant to cattle that are going to be there. Yarrow sticks out a lot. Then it'll be there. Stiff goldenrod because cattle don't like that either. So Little blue. Yep, little blue. Um, sometimes those side oats, which will be really common in a grazed pasture because it's got lower growth points than most of the others. So if, if I can see any natives in the spot I don't think was plowed, I'm generally going to do... I'm not going to start over from scratch in that because you know when you start you don't necessarily know what's going to show up either as you do management over time grazing um, burning different things um, I like to burn or graze do some kind of disturbance to set back um, the dominant vegetation usually cool season grass before I decide what I want to do I want to see what's able to pop up on its own uh, but at that point I mean, it's pretty common. You're not going to get a lot if something's got a really bad disturbance history with right. grazing or spraying. Right. I think give it a test run with a burn and, and well, see what kind of response you get before you give up totally and then go from there. Uh, but as far as the, you know, the old grass plantings we have, I look at the soil types and maybe not the soil itself, just the characteristics of the plants growing there. And I look to see what we... Does there look like there's room for stuff to grow in there? Room, um, very important. Right. I mean, if if it's real heavy soil and you have dense planting, um, the those bunch grasses are are really dense and you don't have a lot of room in there. I might reconsider um, interceding and, and maybe think about starting over. Well, when you're talking about room, I just want to be clear, make this point that there's what we see above ground. And they know this, and you, and you guys know this, but it's below ground, too, because sometimes I'll see people prep a site for interseeding, and they'll just do a burn, and they'll be like, oh, I have all this space. But you really don't, because you yep. still have that all of that rooting no, zone you look is at it taken up. you got to look at it before the burn, too. Right. To and say. if it's tough to walk through, right? it's tough. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have a lot of room for plants in there. Because there's way more roots below ground, and that's the space that you need right. to create mm -hmm. to make interseeding be successful. You need space. Right. And I also look at roughness of the site so if that if we have a lot of uh, gopher mounds if it's super rough um, i might consider starting over on that you mean like uneven not uneven. like texturally rough like oh you're so smooth bumpy, <laughs> bumpy a rough ride now, now is that because you're you wouldn't want to go in there with no tell equipment or anything like that i mean is that for a it's for site prep okay i mean you have to you have to burn it that's not a problem on uneven ground, but mm -hmm. you have to, if you want to spray it, follow up spray, follow up clipping, follow up haying, all mm -hmm. that maintenance down the road. If it's an extremely rough site, uneven site, that stuff's really difficult. And, and in a lot of these cases, I think I depend on neighbors to hay mm -hmm. as part of the management. And again, if it's a super rough site. And what time of year do you usually want them to hay? Uh, it depends on, you know, you, if it's you want to time it when you're affecting that dominant grass. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah. Boot stage, but yep. that first season. Wait, wait, wait. The, boot stage. Off, boot, we're, we're no, no, off. no. You're on track, but I want you to explain what boot stage is because some folks may not know what that means. I want you to explain it. You I want you to it. explain it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's when the, uh, basically when the warm season grasses shoot up and you get that, that tall tiller. And then the, when the, the fluorescence is still in a sleeve, basically. Before it's bloomed. Just Before getting ready to bloom. Yep. Yeah. Good. I just want to make sure you knew. Oh, jeez. 
passing the kids. I've heard it said, so I'm just going to repeat it, yeah. If you don't trust That's me, how I'm I do it. walk out right now. <laughs> no, some people may not know what that is, so we're just making sure everybody knows. Okay, keep going. Keep explaining to Jeff your, your reasoning here. For when you would Explain hang. Me? Yeah, your timing. For when you would oh, You say about hang, well, the stage. So the, I might hay as a site prep. Um, I might hay right after the seeding and do a couple hangs and not worried mm -hmm. about stressing those grasses, just worried about opening the structure up mm -hmm. for light penetration for those new seedlings. So it might not be about the best quality hay. It might not be directly towards damaging those plants. It's mm -hmm. towards getting sunlight to those new seedlings. Once those seedlings are established and I might think that those warm seasons or the cool season grasses are starting to dominate again. Mm -hmm. Then I might try to time the hang to set them back even more or beat them back a little bit more. See, I do it similar. I do something similar, but I, I also want to open up space underneath ground. So I always try to beat on warm season grasses if I'm going to do any interseeding. So when I do a haying, I'll try to get guys to hay it right about guys or gals hay it right about when the um you know like you're saying when it's in the boot stage or still flowering um and i usually tell them hay it as low as possible if there's scalp in the ground that's good the growing points on those grasses are relatively high so if you cut below that they're not going to get a lot of chance to regrow put more energy in the roots and then if i can at all usually i i trade them the hay for them doing some tillage for me and we'll rip the top of that ground so that we can get the seed in contact with the soil. And it also is going to expose a lot of those warm season grass roots to freezing over the winter. So you can knock them back pretty hard. You know, my experience has always been, unless you spray them, you really can't kill them. I've kept them down for two years with tillage and haying, but they'll come back. So I don't worry about losing my warm season grass, but I, I worry more about it being too aggressive. So I'd like to give the Forbes a good, at least one growing season, maybe two, so they start to, till they can uh, start to see some flowering on some of those. So I know that they're relatively well established. They're strong enough to do that. Um, but yeah, you need, you've got to do something for site prep. Um, just, just throwing it on top of, top of, top of grass isn't going to work real well. Although I have heard of people, they'll use those pocket gopher mounds and they'll intercede on that bare soil. Um, I've tried that. I don't think it works terribly well, so it was pretty loose. But anyway, I didn't have you've got to get success with it either. Yeah, I tried it. Yeah, you've got to have, but you've got to get the seed in contact with the soil. And I do like disking on that. And again, that's for stuff that we've seeded, not remnant prairie that's been there. The other thing you can try to do to mimic that same thing is to hit it really hard with cattle late summer into early mid fall. They'll do a lot of the grazing that the hay, they'll stress the grass like the haying would have. And you can all, if you've got enough cattle, they're going to also open up the surface of that soil a little bit because they're going to trample it and the hooves are going to cut into it. But again, they're just hitting the top of the soil. So you're not really damaging a lot that's right. You're not damaging those roots permanently that you're going to kill them on the warm season grass. So yeah, cattle, cattle can be used for that. Um, haying, burning, disking, all kinds of different things. But I like to just make sure that the grass gets um, stressed and then that we've got open soil to put seed on. Because I usually broadcast. I don't uh, drill very often for interseeding. Why? 
it's just I don't know. I mean, you you, you probably can. Um, I just haven't done it. I mean, I've used we'll hand collect seed that we're going to use to intercede, and a lot of times we've got a lot of we got a lot of chaff and stems and garbage that I'll plug up a drill, and we usually store our seed. We don't go and get it clean. We just store it at our facility, and then we'll take it out and we'll broadcast it. Usually with a uh, Vicon spreader. Sometimes we'll do it by hand if it's a small area or if it's steep. So. I mean, so you don't give yourself enough credit. You do have a reason. It's because you're doing hand harvest and you're not cleaning the seed. Well, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not that smart. See, I don't <laughs> think very so fast. Smart. And I don't think. I don't think you have to drill with. No, you don't. Fork seeds. You're gonna. You get just as much seed con soil contact by broadcasting yep. with the forbs if your site prep is done properly. And it's much easier than drilling. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you kind of count on the freezing and thawing is going to work them to the right depth. That's there. And some of them, some of these really small seeds, they need sunlight to germinate too. So some of those have to stay on the top. Well, and you get cold stratification too, exactly. where they mm -hmm. go through their dormant cycle. Yep. So just in case, if you did harvest seed and maybe just hypothetically it wasn't yep. stored in the best case yep. environment, then you're automatically making sure you get through your freeze-thaw cycle. And it's a more natural look. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I don't like seeing rows when you're trying to do prairie reconstruction. Preferably not. I mean, but you bring something up too, Megan, and that's just time of year to do this stuff. You know, you could, if you get a bunch of Forbes seed and it's not stratified and you try to do this in June, a lot of your seed is not going to germinate till the following year and your grass is going to be recovered and it won't be as successful as if you did it the fall immediately after you've stressed the grass. Because again, it, like you said, it needs to have that cold moist stratification. And you, so you prefer to do yours in the fall? Yes. Kurt, how about you? Fall. Fall. Same. Yeah. And I not just well, prefer, I won't do it interseeding if it's in the if it's in the spring. I, I should back up fall or winter or early spring even. Give me some when it's uh, So we're talking about southern Minnesota, fall, winter and spring. So just let's talk about some months so that because that can vary across the state. And I just wanna make sure that we put this in context because primarily we all work in southern Minnesota, and so fall in northern Minnesota is a little different necessarily than fall in southern Minnesota. So primarily, uh, what's your ideal fall month? I mean, I know, tell me well, what the weather's going to do. But. Get a hard freeze. Get the soil temperature down below 50 degrees. You don't want it to germinate that fall. That's the right. biggest thing you want. So anytime after a hard freeze and your soil starts to cool down, anytime from then up until you guess you've still got three or four weeks where it's going to be cold and, and moist. So probably into, oh, early mid-March here and... Late you know, October probably start. Late, I usually wait until November now because it seems we always get a 70-degree push of two or three days, even in November nowadays. So Better I'll wait. Than yeah. It's, it's expensive stuff, whether you had to buy it or whether you got to put labor in it, getting it. So, yeah. I mean, you're not losing anything by waiting a couple weeks in the in the fall. To well, be that's sure. a, another point is that if you can wait and do it in January and February, that's usually when you can glom onto some of the freshest seed too. Mm -hmm. if, if you're, you're buying seed, yeah. Right. You know, and then you're playing the game. Well, am I going to be able to get out there, or am I going to have two feet of snow? Now, anymore, it seems like we don't have a lot of that, or we get those breaks in the winter where things are mostly thawed and you can get them out there. Um, but if you're further north and you worry about, you know, how much snow are you going to be able to get out there and and actually do the seeding in winter, 
you know, it's a thing where you want to be able to, you want to be flexible and you want to hit the weather when it's available. Good point. I want to talk before we jump to uh, specific site examples, species selection really quick. So there are some species and we don't know all of them. This is the same thing like when we talk about rates where if we had, people always ask Jess and I when we do our restoration trainings, well, what's the rate that you know will grow? If you see this at this rate, it will grow. Well, tell me what the weather's going to do and how much rain we're going to get, and I could probably get you a rate that'll work. <laughs> so some of this is guesswork because these are complex communities that we don't know everything about. But um, the Xerces Society, and we're going to talk about them in our next section, has put together a really nice interceding guide uh, really, really nice. And they looked at a lit summary and the practitioner experience. And I think, Jeff, you actually Yeah, I sent him some stuff. And some of those in there look like the stuff that I would have recommended. So. so they have a really nice list of species that have been proven either by practitioner experience or research, tested research, that seem to work better as interceding modes. And so I encourage you, uh, we'll post that, a link to that on the web, when we get all done with the podcast, but I encourage you to take a look at it because it has things like Canada anemones, some of the zizias, um, coreopsis, rose is one, some of the milkweeds, like pretty much all the milkweeds that you're going to use in a restoration swamp, common butterfly world. And they've also got some of my favorites on here, white prairie clover, purple prairie clover, my all-time favorite. And then the echinacea, they have, uh, that list has some things that aren't Minnesota native, so you want to kind of look at where the spread is, but quite a few examples of species that may work better for an interceding. And are you guys still trying to get, when you're picking your species, are you looking at what's missing in the current stand that you're trying to rejuvenate, and are, yeah. do you stack it heavy to that end? Like, we tend to miss early and late, so are you shooting more for those and you skip the middle, or how do you, well, how do you build your mix? I would say in all the cases where I'm interceding, there's really nothing there for Forbes already. So okay. trying to select for everything, trying to run the gamut of early to late bloomers and short to tall. Sedges? Um, now, looking at sedges, it's fairly recent though, unfortunately, that you know we've kind of overlooked them in the past. And not completely, but... Well, now we all have sedge fever and we're getting, getting the love again. It's a rare disease. Everybody in the DNR has it. Oh, my, sedge fever. Can't get enough. And they have the antibiotics for that now. Of course, it's based off the, based off the soil types, too. Right. Mm-hmm. That's true. And there are, I just want to point out, there are upland sedges. So that's one thing. Jeff, you there use of two of my favorites. Yeah, there are a lot. And you use two of my favorites in almost every seed mix I see. Bicnellii and Brevior, yeah. which are all... Plains oval sedge. Plains oval sedge, copper-shouldered oval sedge, yeah. And those will run from wet mesic up to dry. That's why I like them, because you can pretty Mm. much put them in any... They're very widespread in terms of their distribution, and you can put them in almost any seed mix, and they are going to grow. Yeah, they establish really well. And they're tall. Mm-hmm. They like can tall. be. Well, they're taller than you would think of sedges. They're not like I think of sedges as these little adorable, cute little things that you're just like, oh, if, you're there. But if they don't have competition, I've seen them get four feet high, which is big. In a, in a remnant, they're going to be a foot and a half so, or so. The question I have on the seeding though is, what I struggle with is, you know, aim for maybe 20 seeds per square foot on the Forbes, or try to get a little higher. 
but I'm wondering if we don't with these inner seedings if we shouldn't be going even higher than that because you're trying to get seed to land on those openings on those holes and you might not be doing it with a lighter seeding mm -hmm. so. in general the more seed I don't think you can have too much seed so I, I think you might waste seed by doing that but well you do that with a regular seeding anyway not everything's gonna grow you know we don't end up with 20 different species per square foot um, so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have some no. seed that's not gonna grow. No, and I wonder if our target should be more than. Oh, I think it should be, yeah. Than what we've been using. Yeah. Yeah, because you're also amending something that's been pretty well dominated by grasses, exactly. and mm -hmm. so if you're designing a seed mix right at the beginning, you might be shooting for that 50-50, but now you're. And the other thing you you would like to do too is you'd like to have some of those things that are hemiparasitic on grasses. Wood betony is one of those. Uh, false toad flax is another. I don't know where you can find any false toad flax seed. I've tried hand harvesting it. But wood betony grows really well. And if you got a more wet site, um, swamp lousewort, same genus, um, different soil types. Um, what do you mean by hemiparasitic? That sounds bad. Well, they can do, they can, uh, they can do the photo. Told you? What's that? That's something the doctor told you. Oh! No. <laughs> Jessica, help! <laughs> We're going down a bad road. <laughs> Sorry. They can do their own photosynthesis. Hemiparasitic, they can do their own photosynthesis, but they also tap into the roots, especially of grasses, to get nutrients from, and they'll weaken those grasses. <laughs> Kurt is still giggling. <laughs> he can't stop. Jess is giggling. That was a good one. That was a good zinger. <laughs> and I'm not giggling if we, with Jeff. I'm giggling at, at Jeff. Yeah, That's yeah. right. <laughs> we could award points. We would have awarded you mm -hmm. That was pretty good. Sorry. That was pretty we can play the Drew Carey show here. Oh, now they feel sad about it. Does it work, Jeff? Do you get do you do you feel oh, like that's a species you can intercede? Oh yeah, I've had that. Mm. That's one species I did just throw some in the grass and it grew and huh. it tends to grow in these little colonies and they spread out and it suppresses the grass within that colony really well. And it's one of those things that flowers early, really good for bumblebees early in the year. I mean, it's right after past flowers and that sort of thing but before Golden Alexander. So you're going to get it early to mid-May. It's going to be blooming. Um, and it does really it does really well. Jessica, and I've done it a number of spot, spots, so pretty Jess, confident. Will you tell us a little bit about why those early bloomers are so super-duper important for bumblebees? Well, the bumblebee queens, the new queens, overwinter, right, as queens and uh, but they're all by themselves and they have to build their colony so they need lots of resources and those early season resources are hard to come by um, so anything we can provide for those early season queen bumblebees as they're starting to make their hives for the year is a good thing um, yep lousewort's a good one there's lots of good early season species, and those, I mean, as Kurt mentioned, a lot of times the goal is just to get any forbs in there, you know, but I, I think it's important to remember that there's there's other opportunities for interseeding, and I think maybe Jeff will tell us a little bit about some of his uh, interseed. I don't know what example he had in mind, but... Um, uh, I had I had one in mind for you, Jeff. <laughs> well, you go. You tell me what you're thinking of. And... Well, I was just thinking about you know as I often do, uh, 
think about your uh, Lamberton high diversity planting and how you've high diversity. Yep. How you, I mean, you've got what over a hundred species out there. Nah, almost. We, Close to 100. We seeded but 90, and we probably right. found 85 out there. Not right, counting but still... non-native uh-huh. stuff that wandered in on its own. Look at how honest he is. Right. He yeah, you don't want to count that. But he's See, like, oh, no, 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 it's 85. If you're honest, <laughs> most of the time, you can usually get away with a whopper once in a while. So. <laughs> Not with Kirby. With <laughs> but there's still stuff missing from that planting yeah. that you've been trying to add in so you want to talk about that a little bit oh yeah i mean we don't have any lilies there lily seed is one hard to find and two it takes a long time to establish we've got wet sites there where you could probably have michigan lily and you've got mesic and dryer sites where you could have wood lilies there um and those are things i'm looking to add as plugs or bare roots um also you know you mentioned violets and violets we seeded violet. It did not come there. I was talking to one of our one of our colleagues, and you know he mentioned the viability of that seed goes down really quick. So if you're buying it commercially, it's going over the whole summer, and you're not seeding it until fall winter. The viability may already be gone out of that seed. It's something where you'd probably have to harvest it that spring and then interseed it. Um, that's a very hard one to get, but because the thing you mentioned, you know. Uh, regal fritillaries that's the only thing that they're going to use are violets so if we're not providing that we've got some key species that are not going to respond to that Um, the other thing i would say too for early bloomers is um, you know we need to look at some of our native woody shrubs um, plum prairie upland willow things like that because those are going to be some of the earliest things that are going to bloom in the spring even before some of our flowers so really early emerging queen uh, bumblebees they're going to need those shrubs actually so we're trying to include those also sometimes planting them as bare roots i've tried experimented with some seeding um it just it works out better in my experience to actually plant bare root plants if you're going to do shrubs um the seeding it seems like the grasses and the forbs overwhelm the shrubs before they get big enough to amount to anything. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know what Megan and Kurt, I think they're playing tic-tac-toe here or something on the, <laughs> on the paper. Wait, what's that? Kurt's trying to do... They're plotting sure against a, me. No, he's trying to make sure he does a really good job, and he was like, ah, oh, I want to cover this one section better, so because, we're just trying to... Because we're talking interceding, and right. I think we seem to be melding Tell like, me... prairie reconstruction in with and I, I wanted to get back to um, some of the stuff I look for in determining whether or not whether or not a site should to. be a candidate for interceding. And I think it's important for, you know, beginning managers to... Go for it, Kurt. Spread well, the one knowledge. Thing is, again, I talked about the room. So if you go to that site in the brome itself, it's not a very dense stand of brome within that warm season grass seeding you have. If the brome itself is weak then you know you kind of have poor soils. And to me, it's an indicator that you have room for for those flowers. Um, if you go into that stand and you have Kentucky bluegrass and it's a dense mat and you have brome that's dense, reed canary grass that's dense, heavier soils, then it's very difficult to do that interseeding if you ask me. So I might, that might be where, okay, you start over. Don't even consider wasting your time interseeding. 
so a lot of the sites that I've had the best luck on are those sandy, gravelly sites, real poor nutrient, nutrient poor soils. Um, and they're more open anyway. They tend to have more anyway. open yep. structure yep. because it's hard to get a dominant stand of something in there because of the nutrient poorness of the soil exactly. and just everything else right. that's going on. Yeah. So if it's a lower, heavy soiled, just really dense mat of turf, mm-hmm. um, those are the, those are the tough ones. You know, and there's some cases I won't mess with them if there's if it's really moist and you've got canary grass there. Um, I've never found a way to get rid of canary grass. You can kill the plants, but there'll be seed in there. That's one where I probably wouldn't even mess with mess with it, is if we've got canary grass. I try to find a way to put more water on it and get something else growing there. Um, but yeah, if you've got if you've got a dense mat of bluegrass, it, you know, and and there are no natives there, yeah, then I would also start over. But if I can find some natives in there, if it's on a site that I don't think's been plowed. I'll probably stick with it and use management to beat down that grass. Well, and that's really good. I mean, so we're kind of mixing remnant and restoration together. And I just want to caveat again that you, I mean, again, if that remnant prairie has never been broken, that's a pretty serious decision to say, okay, I'm going to break it. Because there are so many biological processes going on in that soil that even though the plant community isn't where we want it to be at or isn't as diverse as we would hope, we can't recreate those processes quickly. And so to lose all of that biology in the soil and rebuild it back takes an awful lot of time. And we don't fully understand all of it. So that should be a decision that's really approached with caution if you you're know. gonna if you're gonna go backwards there. And sometimes that dominance by those other grasses is just due to the management regime that's been there. If you change the management around to favor uh, more native plants, sometimes you may not see much at all in there to start with, uh, but if you just change the management, you may end up with more, more native stuff. So yeah, always try management first before looking to intercede those. If you got a site that you don't think's been plowed before, even if it's really poor pasture, you might be surprised by what's in there. I like surprises. Jess, are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, you no. think it's time to go there? <laughs> sure. Let's science do the literature. Okay, this is the part of the podcast where we are going to take it back to the literature where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper, and everything that we've been talking about today. Jess has some good picks, and I think Kurt gave us some good picks too in here. Way to go, Kurt. Oh, thank you. Jess, you want to start us off? Yeah, so we got a couple good papers, um, a blog, and some really great um, hands-on technical resources. So the first paper I want to highlight today is out of Catherine Yerkonis' lab in North Dakota from 2016. The title is A Resource-Based Approach to Assessing Interceding Success in Reconstructed Tallgrass Prairie. So we didn't talk about this um, with Jeff and Kurt too much about monitoring. But it's a super important aspect to interceding, right? We got to monitor before, we got to monitor after, much like um, Jeff and Kurt were talking about. You got to see what's there, right, to be able to make the decision whether or not you're going to intercede. Um, and then, you know, let's say you make the decision, you're going to want to monitor it after. 
So these guys tested um, effects of mowing um, simulated by grass clipping. So they were just going through kind of clipping grasses um, in a, a plot-based kind of arena with several treatments on interceding success at these really small plot plot level um, plot level scale. So you know you have to take those kind of studies for um, with a grain of salt and think about the the scale at which we're reconstructing prairies is vastly different than those plots, but it's a good way to learn some information. So regardless of the simulated mowing treatment, which they had a couple, they call it overseeding um, here, but we're, we're kind of referring to it as interseeding, increased the plot level species richness. So it didn't matter how many times they mowed or what height, were there different treatments, that mowing um, increased the plot level richness through interseeding. So they do make the caveat, you know, much like Kurt and Jeff have been saying, that mowing may not always be the best strategy. Um, maybe it's haying or whatever, depending on your site level conditions, but whatever strategy gets you that bare soil is the one you should use. Um, so this second paper, I don't know if you want to talk about it at all, Kurt, but it's out of Iowa. It's kind of the, the seminal paper that people have been referring to for a while by um, Daryl Smith and, and others, um, and Williams and Jackson. The, from the Tallgrass Prairie Center and the um, UNI, effects of frequent mowing on survival and persistence of forbs um, seeded into a species-poor grassland. So this is kind of what, what we've been talking about as this kind of traditional um, way of interceding. They started with a really old 25-year-old um, um, heavy warm season grass dominant uh, planting and they broadcast forbs into a recently burned. So again, they're kind of talking about getting this um, soil contact, recently burned site, and then they mowed it weekly for one or two seasons. And again, light availability was super important, you know, whatever you can do to get, get light down to those um, growing forbs on the ground was good. Is there anything else that stood out for you, Kurt, about this paper and well, what you like I about it? Like you said, that was a traditional recipe that mm -hmm. we followed with our early interseedings. Uh, I don't think we've mowed that right. frequently, but that's kind of a pipe dream for us. But um, right, done workload-wise. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I've got some really good-looking sites where I use this recipe. So. That's great. So the the um, the kind of we wanted to to touch. Uh, in on this uh, Chris Helzer's blog again, you know, because we like it. We like the prairie ecologists, don't we, Megan? We do. We like ecologists. Uh, and he's got a good one here um, from this year called It's Working! Evidence of Benefits from Seed Addition and Degraded Prairies. So I really liked this because it's focused on pollinators. You know, I like the pollinators. And what he's doing here is um, he again, broadcast into a recently burned prairie and used grazing, um, uh, no surprise there, to reduce the competition from grasses. And then he um, doesn't really talk about what all he's, the species list that he interceded. I assume that they're Forbes for the most part. Um, but he gives a nice list of species that established in these uh, interceedings. And then with some help from an entomologist, he um, kind of gave a little overview of the pollinator benefits that those plants could provide. So it's a really, um, really great blog. I encourage you to check it out. We'll put a link on our website. 
um, but it's just kind of an update of some of his interceding um, activities that he's done and what pollinators might be benefiting from those uh, that interceding into degraded prairie. So another good one. Megan's got a couple. Um, maybe you want to talk about these guides. Uh, there's a Bowser guideline for interceding, and there's also, we've referred to a little bit, the Xerces interceding guide that's new. Both are really helpful. Yeah, I just really like the... I like both of those. The Bowser one is a little bit quicker, quicker overview, look into things, just getting started. And the Xerces one is really a comprehensive look at all the different methodologies that you can use to intercede and what the research is saying and then what practitioners are saying. And the reason I really like this Xerces one is because it folds those two things together, the practitioner experience and the research, because so often there are gaps in the research because we just, it's a timing thing. We don't have the time and funding to study all of it and we don't know all the answers, but if you pull those two things together, there's lots of things that practitioners like Jeff and Kurt have tried and they know is working for them or not working that can really set the stage. So I love this guide because it pulls all that together. And then I think they have some really handy charts in there, that table two of persistent native wildflowers for interceding. They've got some really good step-by-steps. Like if you're going to do a fall one, then make sure you consider this, this, and this. And so I like that they tried to give you some different recipes for success. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. It's really long. It's it's 45-some pages long and um, really comprehensive. And, and, of course, because it's produced by the Xerces Society, there's a lot of focus on pollinators and um, how to best practices for um, improving pollinators that are visiting your sites. And lots of different types of folks contributed. I know Jeff did. I myself did. Kurt, I don't know if you... Yes. Yeah, so lots. I mean, and not just DNR people, but lo like Nature Conservancy, mm -hmm. Fish and Wildlife, the gamut of folks. And so I think you're getting a really good look at everybody working together and the Prairie Partnership and what's all working for us and how it's, how it's going. And There's they, a regal on page 21, so anytime, you know, <laughs> somebody puts my favorite butterfly. And it's on a flower, not a frog. It is on a flower. It's on Horry Vervain. Yeah. It, like Megan mentioned earlier, too, for folks using that, it's for the, I think, upper Midwest. So there's some species in there that aren't going to be Minnesota native within there. Good point. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess? Take a hike. I think I will. This is a great day to take a hike because nothing's better than taking a hike than when you have friends to do it with. Jeff, Kurt, Jess, let's all go hiking together. Why don't you tell me to take a long walk off a short pier? <laughs> we don't have any of those in southern Minnesota. You're in luck. You're safe. We just have, well, I guess we do at Swan Lake, that little tiny short pier. JK, we won't tell you to walk off of it. So this is the part of the podcast where we are going to highlight some of your amazing public lands. And as always, you can find the two picks that we're going to talk about today on the DNR's Recreation Compass. Just type in DNR Rec Compass into your Google machine. Make sure you're in Minnesota. And it'll pop up a mapping feature where you can navigate to all of these. And then you can also search by name. So because we have two guests, when we have two guests, we make them choose one of their faves. It's always hard to pick just one. We know. We limited Jeff since he's a repeat guest on the podcast. We want to make sure he gave us some different places because there are so many amazing things to see in southern Minnesota, and they're yours. So, Kurt, where are we going? I'm going to Hornstein, WMA. It's in uh, upper Big Stone County. 
along Big Stone Lake. It's just south of Browns Valley. And so you have that bluff line overlooking the overlooking Big Stone Lake and you can see across the lake into South Dakota for several miles. You've got Hill Prairie. You've got Oak Coolies. You've got some What's a coolie? A coolie? A coolie. Coolie man. No. Is that like something you get at Dairy Queen? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> An oak coolie. Ravine? Oh, man. Is, is coolie an ecological term? I think it might be a Minnesota term that I'm not aware of. <laughs> it's a Western not term. Yeah, Western. that's not a term that I've heard before. Western Minnesota. See, where you come from, it's probably a holler, you know. I know. See, or now Jeff knows how to talk to me. Uh, now I know how to listen. <laughs> a coolie. I just learned that. I thought he was so, talking about an ice cream sundae. Oak Ravine. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Good. Beautiful. 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 Area. Sounds beautiful. It does yeah. sound nice. The way you're describing it, it sounded like you were describing a vista, which is something that Jess really likes. I do like vistas. I know you do. As he was talking about looking over the lake, I was like, oh, will he say the word vista? I hope he does. But he didn't do I it. Think it's, didn't I think it's an important point to bring up um, that Kurt actually had a hand in Megan and I's friendship because he suggested a, a particular campsite at Loch Parl where we camped. We had a beautiful vista. Oh. We did. He did, and they, to be fair, Dave Traba did too. They both weighed in on where we should camp. Oh, okay. And so they yeah. played, they together played a vital role in the coming up, together. It was just up so from blame the Kurt. <laughs> it was just up from the coolie, right? <laughs> That is, that started it all. Jess and I met on the prairie. Wasn't oh. he a rapper in the 90s? Cool. <laughs> That's a different... Oh there are a significant amount of mosquitoes. Come I should on. warn you, if you go to this this campground, the upper campground, come this 9 o'clock at night. For the holidays, and everybody's having a different conversation at yeah. once. This is what this is like. Jess is still talking about meeting up on the... <laughs> I'm thinking about my vistas. I like my vistas. Vistas and when we first met. Who Jeff knows is, what Jeff Jeff's talking, talking about? about. Coolio. <laughs> Jeff's talking about Coolio. Kurt's talking I'm about ta coolies. We I'm, just... I'm talking about John Cole. He's the original coolie man. <laughs> Good. From South okay. Southeast Minnesota. Those are called coolies. Oh, thank you so Jeff, much. Jeff, why don't you give us your pick? This knowledge. Yeah, Jeff, what, where are we hiking? We're going to Meadowlark Acres. That sounds a beautiful name. It is. I picked it, so. It is beautiful. Yeah, it sounded like a like one of those uh, subdivisions. So, <laughs> anyways, Meadowlark WMA is a small one. It's only forty acres in size, south of Sleepy Eye. Main reason we bought it is because there's a really nice mesic to wet prairie remnant on it, which is roughly twelve acres. Uh, that's in the northeast quarter of that forty, right next to the county road. County road. Um, 22, the County Road 20 in Brown County. Um, really neat about it. It's got a lot of really small uh, wetlands, the type that are either full of canary grass and um, cattails normally, or they're completely drained out with tile. Uh, these are in really good shape. A lot of Calamagrasta stricta. Um, they got lots of iris. There's Michigan lily in those. There's bottle gentian. And then as you go up in the more mesic areas, you have a lot of flocks in the spring. I've never seen so much flocks before. Um, it'll turn it'll turn pink most of that remnant well. And then you get a really good flush of meadow blazing star 
in August into early September, and uh, it looks it looks really good at that time of year. When we've had a good year for monarch butterflies, it'll be full of them. I took my son there when he was four, and he called it the Monarch Restaurant for many years. And it really is. It's a great migration stop for monarchs. Uh, if you want to see monarchs in the fall, that's a good spot to go. I love that you Megan, called it the Monarch Restaurant. I my also... son did. Oh, well, Give him the cred. He did. He did it. He's oh, biologist in training. I Megan, also like that there? you started out with Calamagrostis, and then you gave the uh, common names for everything else. Were you just trying to be fancy? You didn't want Blue Joint to feel like it, it could be. It's could not save. Blue Joint. What is it? Well, it's Calamagrostis stricta. You tell me what it is. Calamagrostis canadensis would oh, be. Oh, no. Blue Joint. Oh, no. I beat the ecologist. Oh, no. Yay. <laughs> I was only focused on Calamagrostis. <laughs> Not blue joint. Oh, that's why I only used it. I usually don't use Latin or names. Uh, Megan, I think we went there. I think we went to this Metal Ark Acres. Jeff, have you seen Metal Arcs there? I just have to ask. I've never seen one. I see lots of Bob Links. But see, I named it before we'd actually bought it. So. Megan, I think we went there. I think we did a pollinator survey there together once. Did we do? I think we might have gone there. Yeah, we did. I'm stalling because I'm looking at Callum I believe it doesn't have a common name. I think Jeff's right. Oh, that's why you're so fancy. I was trying to hope that it had a common name. We'll nope. give it one. Common names are made up. Doesn't matter. You can call it whatever you want. It's got to have a common name. It's that. It's we're going to call it not blue. We're going to call it slew grass. I like it. <laughs> slew grass. The antithesis of Regnery grass is what I'm going to call it. <laughs> well, it has been fun, as always, on the podcast. I'm super pumped that Jeff and Kurt could join us today. You guys made my day better. I just love the camaraderie and the laughter. Jess, you're always so smart, and it makes me so happy to get to spend this time with you. Don't laugh. I'm giving you a genuine... Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Did you have fun today, Jess? I had a great time. I know, me too. And it's not over, because we're going to catch you next week on Prairie Tuesday on the Prairie Pod, where we are going to be talking all about <gasps> monitoring Jess's favorite topic. So we all know, right, that prairies change through time. That's normal. It's natural. It can be frustrating, especially when you're trying to rebuild them and you have this certain idea of what you want them to look like. So we're going to discuss monitoring techniques that can help you keep better track of how your restorations are changing, what species are the best indicators for health, and some good techniques for adaptive management. We're going to squeeze all that in into 45 minutes. <laughs> It'll be a challenge, but Jess, you're up for it, right? Oh, yeah, always. <laughs> always. I like it. As always, you can check out all the take-a-hikes that we mentioned today and the let science topics on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. We'll catch you all next time. Bye. Check you later. Peace. Bye, Jess. Happy trails.